0: It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, a few of my favorite subjects to discuss, especially lately, involve AI involve UFOs and involve cryonics or cryogenics. It's rare that you get someone that's a genuine expert and thought leader in one of those subjects. However, I don't know that we've ever had the privilege of talking with someone that's a genuine expert and thought leader in all three. Well, that is my distinct pleasure this morning. He is a real live futurist whose academic bona fides are beyond reproach. I am very pleased to welcome Robin Hansen, Associate Professor of Of economics at George Mason University and research associate at the Future of Humanity Institute of Oxford University. He has a doctorate in social science. He's a published author. He's just done just about everything you can do that involves being smart. Professor Hanson, it's a great thrill to talk with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. I hope I can live up to that.
1: let's start with AI, since that seemingly is making news on a day-to-day basis. And some people, when they point to the AI leaps in astronomy or the effectiveness in AI when it comes to medicine and diagnostic medicine in particular, they point to AI as the greatest thing ever, the the next savior of humanity. And then there's others that point to AI as the likely cause of human extinction. What is it in your view? Is AI the greatest thing ever or is ai the thing that will kill us all off
0: well i suppose neither (laughs) it's making progress and that's great and uh you know we'll continue to benefit from it we're a long way from ai being able to take all human jobs and even much farther from ai killing everyone so i think we should just go the stay the course and continue to develop it and see where it can go
1: well, now it looks like uh, Congress is finally taking the issue of AI regulation seriously. Uh, you mentioned jobs. There's a lot of people concerned about the implications of AI for. Artists, a lot of people concerned about the implications of AI for writers, even other fields that you wouldn't necessarily consider creative uh, lawyers or other things, even radio talk show hosts. There's uh, speculation that uh, AI could start hosting radio shows. Should people in those fields, the fu- fields that are frequently talked about as the most likely displaced or replaced by AI, should those folks be worried?
0: Well, they might be a a little anxious would be fine, but this is the nature of capitalism and growth and innovation. (laughs) You know, change is required for us to grow and to improve. So AI might, well, displace some jobs, we'll see, Uh, but overall we should do fine.
1: One of the things that we hear a great deal about in terms of the likely problem areas when it comes to AI is misinformation. Uh, recently, this has been used in the presidential campaign. I think it was uh, Ron DeSantis who put a an AI doctored image of Anthony Fauci, Fauci and Donald Trump hugging. Uh, in uh, China, there's been some concerns about AI misinformation. There was a, an image that made the rounds of, uh, I believe it was the Pentagon being destroyed in an AI image that caused a little bit of a blip in the stock market. Is AI misinformation a big cause for concern?
0: Look, we're several centuries into the human problem of misinformation, at least. (laughs) It's Hmm. been a long time that people have been trying to persuade other people and trying to fool them, and people had to learn how to deal with that. Advertising started at least a century ago. Uh, You know, this isn't new. (laughs) This is just another step in the long game of people having to learn how to be skeptical and how to judge. And AI isn't really that different. So as long as we have good overall policies regarding free speech and fraud and you know the things we use to let people say things but let other people challenge them, uh, I don't see how AI is substantially different. It's a new voice in the world that may or may not be trustworthy, and you're supposed to judge that.
1: So are the people that are concerned about AI, is this the 21st century equivalent of telegraph operators worried about losing their jobs, letter carriers worried about uh, the the growth of email, that sort of thing?
0: Well, I wish people were more, more focused on losing the jobs. <laughs> I hear people just trying to regulate AI and trying to control it and trying to make sure it doesn't say anything they disapprove of. I, I see a lot more you know desire to censor it and control it than I do concern about jobs. Look, eventually at some point, probably you know, computers will take a lot of human jobs. And I think we should try to set up some sort of insurance to prepare for that way ahead of time before the problem shows up is exactly the right time to set up some sort of insurance. And I've got some ideas how to do that, but we're actually not facing a big problem right now.
1: And uh, the uh, issues about regulation, right? Uh, there seem to be some concern that the folks that are in charge of regulating are for the most part in their late 60s, 70s, in some cases, early 80s, and they may not necessarily fully grasp the potential and the potential dangers of AI. What sort of regulations, whether it be in the economy or in the computer programming sphere or in any other arena, what sort of regulations would you like to see when it comes to AI?
0: I'd like us to treat AIs like humans. So if humans lie, that's a problem. If AI lies, it should be the same problem. If humans steal stuff and AI steals stuff, it should be the same problem. Uh, I think we should try to set up the laws so that they're just, you know, dealing well with each of these problems, regardless of whether it's a human or an AI causing the problem. Eventually, we're just going to have a lot more AIs in our world, and we're just going to have to get used to that. Might as well get started now so like for example disinformation if if people ordinary humans lie or say things that are false then we should have some policies that can respond to that whatever those policies are let's use them for ai too
1: So for instance, there's a a radio talk show host that is suing ChatGPT for claiming that he was involved in an embezzlement scheme when he wasn't. Is that the kind of thing that uh, you think that should be able to be taking place? If ChatGPT is giving misinformation about a person, should that person be able to sue for defamation?
0: Just like you could sue any ordinary person. But we have standards. It's not enough that somebody said something false about you. There had to be consequences that mattered for that. That's defamation law. So you'll have to show that this AI saying something false about you actually had consequences for you. Then maybe you can get some damages. But treat the machine like like the people.
1: Uh, We're talking with Dr. Robin Hanson, a professor at uh, George Mason University, also uh, an author of several books and a blogger that uh, you really got to keep up with. He does a great job. We'll tell you how you can uh, keep up with his blogging in just a moment. There was a uh, warning recently from a bunch of leading tech leaders and tech innovators and even some AI moguls, and these researchers and these executives basically warned that the artificial intelligence technology that they themselves were building might one day pose an existential threat to humanity and should be, and this is a quote from the stories about the, the letter, um, this they should be considered a societal risk on a par with pandemics and nuclear wars. How do you see it? Do you agree with that?
0: Well, in the very long run, AI will grow and improve and become very different and basically be our main long-term descendants. So, you know, our ancestors from a million years ago, are they extinct or did they continue on through us? I would rather think that we are their continuation and that it didn't go extinct. But from some point of view, you might, you might say, oh, we're so different from them that they're extinct. That's the kind of problem people are talking about here. Eventually, in the long run, our descendants could be so different from us that boo-hoo, you know, they didn't remember all of our favorite holidays or whatever. So <laughs> that that's the long-term problem that, you know, is likely to happen. Like, Yes, sometimes children kill their parents or grandparents, but it's pretty rare. But that's the kind of thing they're talking about. Maybe somehow these children, these descendants of ours, they will be powerful and you know, capable, and maybe they'd get it in their head to kill us all. And yes, in principle, that could happen. But that's not any more likely than your grandchildren or great-grandchildren killing you just out of spite. The, the key problem here is that You've got to expect there's going to be a lot of change eventually. And I think a lot of people just don't want change. And maybe that's the honest thing we should be talking about. How much change should we let happen in the world? AI will bring change.
1: One of the things that uh, is a more immediate concern that uh, parents, teachers, principals, superintendents are dealing with in the short term, and I think a lot of folks are listening to you, and even I am feeling a little bit reassured by some of the things that you're saying, but one of the more immediate concerns in academia, whether it's college, whether it's high school, is the issue of AI cheating in schools. How do we use AI as a tool to enhance learning, but not let it be used as a tool by students so that they can cheat on all their essays and maybe even other assignments?
0: So I teach, and my students could in principle use the AIs. So I make sure that when I ask an essay question or an exam question, I've already checked it against the computer and see what answers it gives. (laughs) And I ask the questions where it gives the wrong answers. <laughs> so, you know, you can be intelligent about asking questions that the machines can't answer very well. Do so you remember the old thing with calculators long ago? I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember that. Sure. Teachers sure. were mad that students could might be using calculators in class. I mean, the point is when we have tools, we can either ban people from using the tools and try to police and making sure they never get access to the tool because they might use it to help themselves, or we can try to have a new world where they get to use the tool and we teach them and test them on, can they use the tool to actually do stuff? So that's what you should do here. <laughs> Find a question where the tool by itself isn't so good, they need to actually think about the question, including what the tool thinks to give you a good answer, and then Ask them those questions, and now you are teaching them how to think and to use the tool to help them think.
1: So for the purposes of schooling, AI is the modern-day calculator.
0: It's much better than the old calculator, but it's the same concept. It's a tool. You can either tell people not to use the tool and make them do it by hand, or you can try to help them learn how to use the tool to get to do everything better.
1: There was a a Google engineer about a year ago that made uh, quite a splash in claiming that um, the chatbot that Google was developing had become self-aware, and uh, he got a lot of attention at the time, and then when uh, ChatGPT was released, people were saying, "Uh uh-oh, and then there were even more articles written in the Times and other publications about uh, AI uh, trying to persuade a reporter to leave his Wife. One person even blamed AI for uh, someone's suicide because uh, it gave an answer about uh, the world being a better place if he wasn't there. What do you see as the realistic possibility that any of these AI software tools will be self aware, or are some of them already self aware?
0: I, I doubt they are very self aware but hey, let's get into the habit of maybe thinking they might be and treating with some respect. Again, I want to treat them like we treat humans. So uh, we, we try to treat humans with some respect. We don't torture them and, and misuse them as best we can. So let's get in the habit of doing that with the machines. I don't see any reason we can't use these machines without also you know, being somewhat nice to them. So err on the side of being nice.
1: We're talking with uh, Dr. Robin Hansen. You could check out his blog, Overcoming Bias, by going to overcomingbias.com. A lot of great articles on there about uh, everything we are uh, we're talking about. A- as far as uh, AI and robotics goes, A lot of times when we think of the nice robots and when the nice AI entities, we think about people like data on Star Trek, the next generation, maybe uh, the robot in Lost in Space and a couple of other examples from science fiction. You had a book a few years ago. Before all of us were talking about AI on a daily basis, called the Age of M, Uh, work, love, and life when robots rule the earth. What is the age of M? Is are we really going to see a day on this planet where robots rule the world?
0: I I do think we will see such a day. It may not be for several centuries. My book is about a very human kind of robot. Basically, it's a human brain uh, in a computer that acts just like the original human brain was. So my book is about very human kinds of robots for whom it is reasonable to think they're conscious and have feelings and that you should not be too mean to them. Uh, But whether or not AI is of that sort or other sorts, yes, I think eventually AIs will rule the earth. They will be our descendants ruling the earth. And just like you want your other descendants to prosper and grow and be more capable, I think you want these descendants to prosper and grow and become more capable and that you shouldn't be so afraid of that, but you should want to help them as long as you can to teach them how to, how to be nice, uh, pass on our values, as long as they are not much more capable than us. Let's try to help them along.
1: You have publicly talked about that you are planning to have your brain cryonically preserved when you die. Yep. Uh, tell me, and this is something that I've thought about a great deal. It's something that I would love to do, you but uh, I'm still what? It's available. You could. Oh, I, I'm thinking about it. Okay. Uh, tell me about about your decision. Why did you make this decision to have your brain cryonically preserved when you die?
0: So I'm a physicist, and I don't have any, you know, other things in my way of thinking that I am just in my brain. I am in my head, in my brain, this brain structure is what makes me, when this brain dies, that's the end of me, but if we could save this brain and bring it back later, then I come back later, so the question is, is that possible? Now, it's not possible now, but it plausibly will be within a few centuries, so the same sort of belief that technology will improve that makes me think eventually we will have really capable robots makes me think eventually we will be able to fix or revive people who have been frozen today so uh, the idea is when medical science gives you up on you now then they basically freeze you in a way that you are just frozen and won't change it's not like something in the freezer that like gets bad as it's frozen over months this kind of freezing is really low temperature where you just don't change and then it just sits there and waits until maybe centuries, until future technology is good enough to bring you back. So I I do think there's a pretty good chance that eventually future technology would be able to come back. The main risk, I think, is that the organization that's supposed to save you in the meantime will fail. But look, (laughs) at the moment, you know, they they throw you in the ground and the worms eat you. The odds there are really even much worse, right? (laughs) So if if there's just a 5% chance of this working, I think on a cost-benefit basis, it's worth the deal. So you don't have to be very confident this will work. You just have to think there's a a 5% chance that this organization won't screw up. And when it's trying to save you frozen for however long it takes, that they will successfully do that. And then the future will bring you back. Now, you might think if billions of people were trying to come back in the future, the future wouldn't want billions of people. (laughs) That would be a problem if there were billions of people doing this. But in fact... Only like three hundred people have ever been frozen so far, and only three thousand people are signed up for it. Even though this has gotten free international publicity for at least fifty years, well, so one of the people want to do this apparently. So, if, there's
1: plenty of room. One of the one of the hurdles to this is expense. It, it is quite costly to be frozen, isn't it? It's not
0: that costly compared to like most end of life medical care, and honestly, there's. There's people who basically have their ashes thrown into space for about the same expense. Hmm. And, you know, nobody complains about them. People complain more about cryonics. Actually, it's often a, a, a stress point in relationships, but it's not a stress point to have your ashes thrown into space, I think, because nobody thinks you believe that will bring you back. What bothers people about cryonics is they think you believe you might come back
1: one of the one of the issues that comes up when i talk about this with uh, with friends with family even my wife is the issue of of a soul right and can a a soul be brought back or and or preserved i, I don't know your spiritual or religious beliefs but do you think that belief in cryonics is inconsistent with the belief in a soul
0: not, not at all so Clearly, we have a lot of modern medical procedures they never thought of thousands of years ago. And nobody complains that, like, doing surgery on you or putting some plastic tubing in your body will somehow hurt your soul, right? (laughs) Everybody's okay with doing lots of complicated technological modern medical procedures uh, on people to try to save them. And, you know, nobody says that that's going to make your soul go away. So I don't see why you should think this medical procedure would make your soul go away any more than any of the other ones.
1: No, I, I think that's a fair point. I can't argue with that. I may have to sign up today. Uh, talking with Robin Hansen, He is a professor at George Mason university, also has a, a terrific blog called overcoming bias, which I do recommend. Uh, Robin, you had a very interesting uh, column recently on the issue of UFOs. This has been all over the news. We've been covering it on this program. Where do you see the UFO? issue right now i realize that covers a lot of ground but do you believe you believe that these government whistleblowers that are coming out like david grush most recently are putting forward accurate information do you think the u.s government for instance does have a lot of information about uh, non-aircraft of non-human origin that they haven't shared with the public
0: i don't know if it's true i know the question's important enough and the sort of complaints or observations people have made are on the face of it legitimate enough that this ought to be looked into, that, you know, this, the stakes are just huge here. <laughs> so, yes, of course, we, we, people are seeing weird things, they're not sure what they are. Uh, they seem to be, you know, safety issues and maybe national security issues. So, yes, people should be looking into this and finding out what's at the bottom of this. Now, my expertise is I did this analysis of aliens in the universe and I'm a social scientist, so I realized I'm kind of an expert on what we call the prior here. That is, how plausible is it that there might be aliens visiting Earth? What kind of a story would make any sense of that? So I'm not an expert on the particular sightings and the particular you know, evidence and whether you can believe it or what, how to explain it. But I am somewhat of an expert on just in general, could there be aliens here? And if so, what would they be doing? And so because I had this background in aliens in general, I figured I should sit down and do my best job of coming up with a story there. So this, the question is, if some UFOs are aliens, what the hell? <laughs> it's like, how does that make any sense? Mm. And so I tried to work out my best story. And the question is, how tortured is my story? Like the more strange, crazy things I have to assume to make a story like that work the less plausible it is and the more you should just dismiss this as, no, that's crazy. This couldn't happen. But when I put together my best story, it wasn't that crazy. That, as I said, my a priori chance for you know, UFOs being aliens are roughly one in a thousand, which is actually much higher than a murder trial. So when you show up in a murder trial, you say, OK, it's unlikely that this guy murdered that one. But, hey, you say you've got evidence. I guess I should listen, right? And in a typical murder trial, the prior probability is, well, one in a 1,000 people on average get murdered, and that person has maybe a 1,000 associates. So, hey, the prior is about one in a million that any one associate murdered that person. But you don't say, hey, this is one in a million. That's crazy unlikely. I'm not going to listen to your evidence. (laughs) Go away, right? You say, okay, that's the prior. Let's hear your evidence. So with UFOs as aliens, I say, well, the prior is like one in a thousand, much better than one in a million. (laughs) So I say, hey, you got to look at the evidence. You can't just wave your hands and dismiss it and say, that's too crazy. It's not that crazy. It's somewhat crazy, but it's not that crazy. So look at the evidence.
1: You coined the term, the great filter. What is the great filter?
0: Ever look up in the sky at night? Or in the day, you will see a universe that looks dead, just dead everywhere. There, there's no activity or life or civilization anywhere we can see off of Earth. And if you think about that, that's kind of puzzling. This is called the famous Fermi's question: Where is everybody? Because well, we're, there's life here, so some process led to us being here. Why can't that process elsewhere lead to things like us elsewhere, right? But if you look in the universe, you see nothing. So clearly, it must be really hard (laughs) for other things elsewhere to reach the point, not just where we are, but beyond where we are, to become really visible in the universe. Something makes it really hard to become visible in the universe. Whatever that thing is, I call it the great filter. That is, you start with a dead planet then there's some chemistry, there's some simple life, then there's complicated life, etc. You go down a long path and eventually you reach where we are and then eventually you become much more capable and you become visible in the universe. There's a process that goes down that path that has a filter. That is, things that start down the path, most of them don't get to the end of the path. They get knocked off. So the filter is whatever keeps knocking things off that path such that they don't get to the end. And a big question is, how much of the filter have we passed now? So if we were past pretty much all the filter, then it's smooth sailing from here on. It was really hard to get to where we are, but from here it'll be really easy to go out and become visible in the universe. But if there's a you know big part of the filter still ahead of us, then that says not going to be so easy. Maybe we don't have such good odds to uh, go to this you know big visible status. <laughs> Uh, uh,
1: final question. You've given us a lot to think about already, and I think a lot of people are going to be checking out your blog, uh, Overcoming Bias. You have said that you expect our civilization to be completely artificial within a million years one is why do you think that and and two what would a completely artificial civilization look like would it look like the Borg on Star Trek would it look like the the Cylons on Battlestar Galactica would it look better would it look worse Uh, why do you think we're going to be artificial and what would that what would that entail
0: so we're biological at the moment. And the main thing that means is we're made in little tiny factories inside ourselves. <laughs> that is, cells are factories and they make other cells and they make it on these really tiny scales that don't achieve what we economists call scale economies. It's not very efficient. So in the economy, in the human economy, we make stuff in factories <laughs> and it's much more efficient. We have specialist mines and we have specialist transportation and the specialist machines that make things and distribute things. In the human economy, we grow the whole economy together, but each part of it can't really grow by itself because it's tied to all the rest. That's what I mean by artificial. So in the future, instead of growing a human in, in a you know a vat like a womb, where there's all these little cells that are factories, we would instead design them on you know design tables and then build them in factories according to plans and send materials in. We would make them according to plans like we make cars. So like Cars are artificial, horses are not, right? Horses are made in other horses, cars are made in factories. So that's what I mean by artificial. It's just we will plan them and organize how to make them and make them much more efficiently. Uh, We will make people, we will make our descendants, and then we will be able to change them a lot more. So because we're grown in wombs, we can't change ourselves very much right now, right? We can only make pretty small modifications. But stuff we make in factories, we can change a lot, right? We, we know the design. We know the process. We can change the process. So once our descendants are artificial, they will be able to be designed and changed a lot more. And so now the question is, well, what kind of crazy, strange things will they be? So you know, our descendants will be much more varied, much more capable, uh, because we will be able to choose their structure and choose how to make them out of a much larger range of possibilities. So that's exciting if you're hoping your descendants will be very capable. I guess it could be kind of scary if you don't like things that are different from you.
1: We're going to have to end it there. Robin Hansen, it is uh, thought-provoking talking with you. Uh, the next time we chat, uh, I am uh, going to have a, a lot of other questions for you about the developments in AI, about uh, where we're headed UFO-wise, and hopefully people will check out your blog at uh, Overcoming Bias. Appreciate the time. Thank you. If people have comments, questions, thoughts, concerns, you can give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.